Hello and welcome to the Aesthetic Vibes podcast. I am your host, Amy. This is the podcast where I talk about anything and everything that's on my mind, ranging from deep and meaningful all the way through to random shit. You're here now, so why don't we hang out? Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Aesthetic Vibes podcast. I am your host, Amy. We're here today for another episode uh, in the sweltering heat of Sydney, Australia. So welcome from the heat box that is my beauty room slash recording space. Today I want to talk a little bit about the whole lawyer process in Australia, um, how to become, and then a little bit about what we do Uh, the day-to-day type stuff, and then some of the things that we focus on and and some of the things are a little bit weirder and you might not know that this stuff exists or that we do this stuff. So uh, let's just get going. So I've had many a person ask me, hey, do you think I should study a law degree? What's the process to become a lawyer, etc., etc.? My response is usually, look, if it's a passion, yes. If you're just looking for something to do, education-wise, um, think very hard because it's not an easy process and there are multiple gates, if you like, that need to be opened by yourself along the way and it could be that you've done a degree and there might be another hurdle that's going to stop you after completing that degree so it's it's a really good idea for you to understand everything that's necessary for becoming a lawyer in Australia and I'm going to talk specifically about the New South Wales process because that's where I am I practice out of New South Wales and that's my area of jurisdiction so it's you know You always feel comfortable in your own jurisdiction. So what is the process? Perfect question. First and foremost is a recognized degree. It has to be recognized, has to be accredited. So what that means is there are core subjects that are shared amongst the degree. These core subjects are accredited and mandated. And it ensures that there is a lens of consistency around what is being taught. So we're all taught the same fundamental stuff, regardless of jurisdiction. So you've got to get through the degree, right? So uh, if you're studying full-time, it's three to four years, part-time, you know, six to eight years. And there are mandatory subjects you have to do, as I've mentioned, and there's a whole stack of electives that you can choose. That's a considerable time investment. If you're working full time, it's time out of your personal life or time you'd spend with family. If you're a student straight out of um, high school, bit of a different story. You might be studying full time and have the capacity to do so. A lot of people juggle casual work with it. So it does become stressful. So you finish your degree. Everything's fantastic. You still can't call yourself a lawyer yet. You are a law graduate. You then move to practical legal training, which is mandatory to becoming a practicing lawyer or solicitor. That is a brutal three-month full-time or six to 12-month part-time 
program. Within this program, you study again a stack of foundational topics that everybody has to study, and then you get to pick up to two electives. What's different about this in comparison to your degree is this too is accredited. However, you have weekly submissions slash assessments that are due. You can have two, three. I remember one week I had eight. So these are these mini documents that have to be created and put through by you. However, you are not marked. It's a pass-fail grading system. And then you have to have oral assessments for each subject. Uh, the oral assessments are freaking brutal. I am quite confident when it comes to speaking and being articulate sometimes. However, this process itself is freaking scary because you basically go up against an expert and you, you are going up against them because they're going to pummel you with questions. There's an expectation that you know each of your assessments inside out, which you probably go, well, you would because you've written them. Not if you've written, you know, 12, 16, 20 assessments for that subject. And it's a complex matter to memorize that stuff. It's impossible. You can take your notes in, but if you can't refer to your notes quickly and they give you about 15, 20 seconds, then you're just asked to just answer the question. Uh, so oral assessments, you get absolutely brutalized in them and you've got to get a pass grade. If you don't, you get the chance to reattempt once. Brutal. Once you pass practical legal training, actually before that, there are two components to practical legal training. There's what I just mentioned, the coursework. The second part is practical. And that is a practical component with some firm, about three months worth, two to three months worth of practical. You basically go in as a graduate, you learn the, the basic foundational elements, and then you kind of go on from there to completing that practical element. Most of the time, law graduates are doing that in their own time for free, and it can take a while to clock up those hours. Uh, in a lot of instances, people are kind of just finding any firm and getting the foundational experience to be admitted. Once you've completed that, those two pieces come together. You've completed PLT, practical legal training, and then you move on to the admission process. The admission process is robust. So you submit your application, they do a background check, and as part of candor, open, honest, transparent communications, you're asked to declare anything that might not make you a fit and proper person, which is a requirement under the professional conduct rules. Uh, so basically what that means is if you've had any debts with Centrelink, which is the government body here, Medicare, taxation, speeding fines, uh, other charges, indictable offences, anything you can possibly think of. They like you to, so if you've got mental health concerns, you need to declare that. That There are so many different facets to it. Oh, child support, that's another one. Um, and then anything international as well. And they do their background checks. They do their due diligence. They have a poke around and they want to make sure that you are being open and honest with them. The admission process itself is lengthy. So you're waiting for a response. Sometimes they'll come back to you and say, hey, we need more information, which they did for me. They needed a further letter. 
Um, Because going back 20 years ago, maybe more, I had um, a discrepancy in uh, like a Centrelink benefits. At the time, I was receiving some sort of study allowance and um, there was a discrepancy of money. And so they wanted to know what happened here. So I had to go and get a letter on a matter from over 20 years ago from Centrelink. That was not easy because it's a very old case. Luckily, they were able to scrounge something up. Um, but that's what they look at. They look at everything. So let's say everything goes well. Um, you go through the admission process. Like I said, it's lengthy. You are then admitted into the Supreme Court within your jurisdiction. And for me, it was New South Wales. You attend an admission ceremony, which is mandatory, because you sign in the register, basically saying, um, from this day forward, I am an admitted lawyer slash solicitor. Fantastic. Following that, you have to gain employment. Sounds easy. It's not. There's a lot of competitions, particularly here in Sydney. Um, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. So you've got to find employment. And for me, that was difficult because I do so many other things on the side that are revenue generating. So, um, for example, I teach, which I've spoken about extensively on the podcast. So that is an outside revenue source, better described as just additional salary wages that are coming in. And a lot of law firms will implement an exclusivity clause, which means you can't work outside of the job that you have with them, which just doesn't work for me. I have a book on the side. Occasionally I'll write for other books. I'm doing research. So for me, I need somewhere that isn't going to impose that exclusivity clause on me and also allow me a little bit more autonomy. Keeping in mind, I've been in the corporate work environment for over 15 years now. So for me, I understand that environment. You don't have to train me up from scratch. I am there. I understand it. It's the legal stuff that I really just need a hand with. So anyway, after a lengthy period, I was kind of teaching, found a job. Fantastic. And then you have to have a supervisor to apply for your practicing certificate. Solicitor, uh, supervisor and a firm because they go down on your supervising um, component within your practicing certificate. And for two years, you are on a restricted practicing certificate, which means you just can't offer advice, right? So uh, somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've got this problem. I come up with maybe some ideas on how to solve it. I do some research into legislation, whatever. I run that past my supervisor to make sure that that's okay. I'm on the right path. I'm giving the right advice. You do that for two years. So you are heavily dependent on your supervisor. After that, you go on to an unrestricted certificate. It changes. You have indemnity insurance for yourself. You're allowed to offer now advice. But until that point, you're on a restricted practicing certificate, which is where I am at the moment. Um, I'm a little bit older entering into this profession. What that means for me is I am competing with younger people who have just finished their degree. A lot of the times law firms are looking for people who are fresh. Maybe they don't have that experience. Along with that, because I hold quite a few degrees, a lot of firms look at it and go, well, she's going to expect a lot of money. So I get overlooked uh, for being overqualified. 
So it took me quite a while, but I found the firm who fit the right model for me. So um, I'm working at that firm at the moment and I'm not under an exclusivity clause. I'm able to still do my extracurricular activities and there's a lot of flexibility around work hours, which I really need because if I'm teaching, I need the ability to go and do so. Sometimes I teach at the Sydney campus, which means I need the time to go to the campus, teach and then come home. That within itself, um, if I'm doing a three hour lecture, you know, that's that's five hours roughly bit less television and movies have really skewed um lawyers and solicitors i think in the public's perception of what we do and don't do okay so we are not all in court arguing pleading case making these uh, you know grand speeches that are inspirational and heartwarming we don't we don't all do that there are litigators uh, and they specialize in litigation going to court going through the uh, judicial system and um, actually understanding those processes we don't all do that a lot of us will offer advice outside of the courtroom with the objective of not going to court so that's that's the objective right if you've got a client and it's a matter that can be settled outside, you really encourage that because you don't want to end up in court. Court is expensive. There are party fees, other costs. It just racks up really quickly. So for a lawyer or solicitor who is ethical, you're really looking at can we avoid taking this person to court or whatever the matter is to court? Uh, some people kind of specialise in getting it to court. Uh, that's not the case with us. We try to solve it beforehand to avoid. the the. And the other thing is the lengthy processes, right? You can easily wait 12, 24 months longer for your matter to be heard in court. So from a timely and cost-effective position, you really want that settled outside of court we don't always wear the power suits you know the button-down blazers and the really cool power suits um i work from home 100 percent. i am often in like tights if it's winter uh shorts if it's summer and a band t-shirt usually of some description and if i have to meet with a client i'll put a blazer on but we're not all kind of dressing in the power suits carrying the briefcase kind of doing all of that stuff so I think that's also another misconception we work long hours and often we bill for a certain period of time but we work beyond that billing period particularly for those that are on a restricted uh, practicing certificate and this is because we are gaining that experience to become more effective and efficient at what we do so that means the hours are long we work long hours for example, yesterday I had a matter that's been assigned to me and I was looking into this, the case itself and realized, hey, I know nothing about this area of law. I have to go off and conduct research. And I spent six hours reading legislation, tracking down legislation that was even applicable, looking into policy and procedure and really understanding the ins and outs of the matter, drafting question lists, looking at what other information do I need from the client to arrive at a good outcome for them. What is the outcome that they're looking for? So uh, I spent an awful lot of time just reading yesterday. My eyes were so sore from just purely read, read, read. So 
it's a lot of what we do there's a lot of administrative tasks that are kind of repetitive you know you have a prospective client you go through the prospective process you send out an email with costs attached to it you send out a cost agreement there are standard and set procedures that we follow Um, There is a lot of writing letters of demand and advice letters and a lot of the times we have set templates for this stuff that covers off the necessary parts of the law and it's your job as a lawyer or solicitor to actually go in, input the matter details, really understand the legislation, pull the legislation in, seek the outcome and kind of go from there. So there's a lot of administrative work. And we're not all lucky to have PAs or, you know, office people that do the administration, um, particularly in smaller boutique firms, which is what I work in. It's it's definitely not, you know, you don't have someone running around after you. Uh, I know I definitely don't. I'd love that, though. Hey, I'd so love that. <laughs> I think in that respect, it's not dissimilar to the corporate role that I held before my teaching role um, for the last 10 years before that. A lot of what I did in that corporate role was problem solving, seeking information on the problem, understanding the problem at depth, researching. That's a really loud bike. Wow. Okay, it's gone and then arriving at a potential outcome sharing the outcome and then pressing forward from there so there's it's not dissimilar in that respect um i spent a lot of time problem solving and i think the one thing that we need to do more of as problem solvers whether that's in the corporate environment or uh, as a lawyer otherwise is really immerse ourselves in the problem too often we go oh there's a problem here's a solution without fully understanding the depths of the problem. So when I worked in the corporate world, my area of expertise was problem solving. So what I would do was train people to remain in the problem for as long as possible. The longer we sit in the problem state, the more we understand it, the more we know the depths of what we're dealing with to then go and take action. So it's about slowing that process down, stopping thinking, asking the right questions. Sometimes we don't know the questions to ask, but if we think about things more broadly, hopefully we arrive there. My computer just went into like sleep mode and I'm like, is this still recording? Has this cut me off? I had like a computer update to a brand new iOS and it's wild. It's so different. There's like moving screensavers and stuff. It's very cool. I have a Mac for those uh, who are like, what? Uh, yeah, I have a, I have an Apple. I have a Mac. So Apple. Do we even call it? I have an Apple. I remember, um, you know, the really big <laughs> desktops. I bought one of those like, fuck, so many years ago now. I can't even, I can't even think of how long and I've still got it. It's like the computer that's filled with viruses because we download stuff on it. I think we called those apples. Remember the big chunky ones with like the backs on them? They were so cool. And then the little portable one. Oh, that was so cool. You were so cool if you had one of those. Um, back in the day, times have changed so dramatically. And what was cool then? I don't even know if people use the word cool. Like, I don't think they do. I don't think anyone uses the word cool anymore. <laughs> Makes me think of... um. Brooklyn Nine-Nine with the guy, the main guy, and he's like, cool, 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 all the time. Anyway, um, 
the world of law is complex and in my instance I am a generalist so far so it means I dabble a little bit in everything depending on what comes through depends on where to from there so there is a lot of uh, pivoting if you like which is a terrible corporate world word that's used but it's seeing okay cool I've worked in this space oh I've got to shift somewhere else now because this problem needs addressing a lot of lawyers and solicitors will specialize in a particular area which means that they're an expert in that area I will get there eventually but I just don't know what my area of interest is I know for a fact it's not property and land it's just not my cup of tea I'm not really a fan of immigration. I enjoy employment law, taxation law, criminal maybe. Um, so yeah, it's it's a bit, you know, it's a bit open-ended for me, I guess. So the firm that I work at, what we specialize in apart from being generalists is the concept that we take additional time with each matter so while we might bill for a certain amount of hours we will spend a considerable more of time after that because we want to make sure that we've got stuff right we've got the content right we've got the details right we've got everything right before it kind of goes client facing and that means little things like you know all of your formatting and your grammar spelling all that type of fun stuff which is the stuff that I always talk to my students about anyway and I always recommend that we use some sort of tool like Grammarly not AI and I'll get to that in a minute but Grammarly is good because it'll actually teach you how to improve your grammar and there's nothing plagiarism wise there's no issues or concerns with Grammarly because it purely looks at your grammar it's like having a silent copywriter having a look at your work so it's logical and there's nothing wrong with Grammarly particularly if you're a student Grammarly is perfect I recommend it to all my students particularly my students who um, English is the second language for I definitely always recommend it for them so I'll move to AI. So I think, you know, chat GPT is fantastic. I think it's wonderful. However, what I'm seeing as a lecturer is really starting to concern me. And I would be even more concerned if that was filtering into the world of law. We, there's a line, right? It's okay for AI to maybe finesse something. But when it comes to it writing entire documents, in the instance of some students, entire assessments, that is not good enough. That takes away from the skills that we are taught and developed and shifts that responsibility to AI. So how do we, why do we need our skills then? If, if an AI is going to do everything, why do we need those skills? So for me time and place you know I was marking all weekend and there were students who just use AI to generate their assessments what students don't understand is AI is identified through Turnitin so there's a little thing that pops up for me that says AI similarity and then it has a number then I click on that and it takes me to an AI system that shows me the passaging and I had a student that just copy and pasted all of it just copy and pasted and I was like oh my god what in your mind thinks that I won't catch you out so 
I think time and place. I don't know what that you know what is AI going to do. If AI is able to do the basic tasks, that means humans that are doing those basic tasks now need to have greater skills. And those that have those skills already need to enhance their skills. So it's almost like it's going to plug part of the employment equation, meaning humans need to be more skilled. They need to be more educated in order to do roles that AI won't do for cheaper. Something to think about. So, um, I started a TikTok the other day, like an account for myself and my colleague who I've known forever. And it's a law-based TikTok account. I posted my first one yesterday and it blew up and everyone's kind of gone feral on it. I talked about some of the weirder road rules in New South Wales in particular. And there are things that are illegal that people don't know. So I'll just share a couple of those with you. But, um, if so, so these are just some of the things that are illegal splashing someone like if you drive into a puddle and they're on the sidewalk and you splash them illegal honking your horn and waving goodbye with your hand when you're leaving someone's house illegal driving through the drive-through and using tap and go is illegal so what i mean by that is if you turn your car off from the ignition and it's completely stationary that's okay but if your car is still running, you are not able to do that. You are not able to tap and go. And there's all these people blowing up in the comments section that are like, oh, McDonald's is private property. You can do what you want. And like all this random shit, like, no, you can do it if you do this. This is Anyway, it's a law, people. <laughs> You're not allowed to do it. It's, it's literally there. It's a brand new law. I'm not making it up. <laughs> Often where I live in Sydney, there are people um, that like to warn you where there's a like an RBT or maybe um, someone doing a random speed test and they will flash their lights um, saying, warning, police are ahead. Illegal, not allowed to do it. So if you get caught, you're done. Um, leaving your keys in the ignition like leaving the keys in the ignition whether the car is running or not and stepping away for a moment, illegal. People get caught doing this and apparently lots of people do this. So there are like these weird and wacky rules that exist um, and laws that exist and I'm going to spend a lot more time on my TikTok actually picking apart some of this. Um, I've got a couple of TikToks going live today about vaping laws which are going to change from the 1st of January dramatically and then um there's tobacco laws coming in so there's a lot in the we want to be a healthier society space that are changing um there's workers comp changes coming in um so yeah if you're interested in the legal stuff understanding the laws understanding how things are changing i definitely recommend you drop by my tiktok um so it's mine and my colleagues and it's called uh lawyer life chronicles yeah or law lawyerly life chronicles i don't know i'll confirm it in the comment section <laughs> it's new how do i remember the name of it um so yeah anyway that's kind of my take on the law being a lawyer the steps to being some of the more interesting components and then some weird shit that we deal with there are antiquated laws in there that i'm going to go into like stuff like 
you can't carry a certain amount of potatoes in your cart like the shit's wild right so um if you want to know more hit by my tiktok but that's probably it for today i'll leave it here uh i appreciate you dropping in uh hit me up on my socials it's all the the standard stuff i do include it in the description box um socials email my website all that cool stuff and uh yeah so until next time bye guys 